Welcome to the Say Your Auto Group podcast, Zach Bennett, Chris Sayer, Nick Sayer, and today we have a great episode for you discussing short-term goals leading into long-term success and how knowing your numbers plays a vital role in that. We also have Brandon on to dis- discuss his time at BMW and the success he's had both as a salesperson and as in the finance department. We also cover all of the sales incentives for the three stores and highlight any good ones to push for the month of September. That's all next here on the hit, the Sayer Auto Group podcast. Well, come on, boys. Back again. How we doing? Good. Solid. 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 Into September, into the fall um, season. Weather's changing quick. So, usually a lot of do on the ground in the morning. Marty and Rick played golf this morning. How'd that go? Putting slow? Tough to putt. I need to really <laughs> smack it. You know? <laughs> it really so, it's, it's, yeah, it's getting cold. How did you guys feel August went for the dealership as a whole? Was different, uh, the different groups or different uh, stores? I uh, started with Beamer. We did all right uh, from a number standpoint. Uh, we did hit our new car goal, uh, which was awesome. Uh, I think I mentioned last time. Also, we sold, uh, I want to say, eight EVs, which, um, you know, looking from a market perspective, we had to be one of the higher um, EV dealers uh, based off of, you know, inventory and what we had. So um, big shout out again to the BMW crew for pushing those out, getting those done and, and you know, setting the setting the standard for us in the EV market. Um, a quick shout out to Alex. Uh, I believe he hit 20 units 20. in uh, August. So the big two zero for Alex. Uh, wow. That's, crushed it. That's crazy. Um, you know, one thing with Alex is he's pretty consistent uh, when it comes to putting up solid numbers and, um, you know, making every day uh useful you know taking advantage of every day sales day of the month so good job alex <clears throat> that's pretty money dude how'd the dodge boys do we did really well uh, i know that we ended up selling 59 new units uh one short our overall new goal um but i think for us as a team what was really cool is they they rolled out that ram half ton incentive that we pushed as as a as a dealership and we ended up, I think they set our goal. So the month previous, I think we touched on this, but the month previous we sold five. So in July we sold five half tons as a whole and two of one Alberto bought in service. I sold one to my sister. So really there was three, like, you know, fresh customers that bought a half ton. Uh, and they set a goal of 15, uh, with us to begin August. And I remember Chris talked about it last and like, that's, okay, we'll give everything that we have. And we ended up pushing out 18. And so it was really cool to see uh, the guys go out there. And if they count TRXs, you know, it'd be even more than that. So, but, uh, so that was really cool to see. And I think overall, every guy outside of the new guy that we hired, uh, Kenny, um, sold over 10. And then for him, he sold five in his first ever month here, sold five in the second half. And so really good to see from, from all those guys, uh, a really good month. And, you know, just to continue to see the refinement of the process, always areas to get better, but they seem to to have the groove down pretty good. So just a lot of, a lot of fl- uh, teamwork on that floor and you can tell in the results. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I wish I had Matt here to speak for his team, but I know they had a good month. I think they Turned out 30 units, if I remember correctly, looking at their numbers for the month. Uh, they had seven centers and sold through all seven of those. That's pretty sweet. So, yeah, that was cool. They have to play that game 
because their allocation is based on you know selling through stuff quickly. Uh, so they they made a good push for the models they still had on the ground, pushed through them really well. So good job, Nissan. As a group, uh, in July we sold 125 units. This in August we sold 157. So that's 25.6 percent increase. That's awesome. We pushed a solid month out there, and uh, the numbers stayed relatively similar. We dropped a little bit on the per unit as far as gross goes, and uh, in most categories, also in the finance. And I was thinking about that uh, and how it's important when we do get busy and have higher volume that we still try to squeeze everything we can out of each sale. You know, you can, I understand like it gets exhausting, especially as a finance manager when you're pumping through, you know, 30, 40 deals, but make sure that you still go through your process on each one. Like we talked about prior weeks and stick to your game plan always try to squeeze as much as you can don't let that performance drop off because the volume gets gets high you know what i mean yeah and my question to you i know that we've talked about this but for me with the dodge guys i want to focus on uh taking you know the data that we have with their like ability for their customers that buy back end and you know rate them and, and make sure they know they're sitting and talk about the importance of it but for you like why is it important for a salesperson to care if their customer buys a warranty and and i know we've touched on this a little bit but i always think it's good to emphasize because sometimes the salesperson you just worry about the sell and i understand that but why is looking at the whole scope important for them well i think what we're trying to do overall is is maintain long-term relationships with people and all these back-end products that your finance manager are offering the customers are geared around protecting the asset and keeping the customer happy long-term. Yeah. And as a salesperson, that's directly correlated also to your performance. I mean, if you have a mad customer that feels like, you know, after that sale, things weren't taken care of, you're not going to see them back. So you might think, oh, it doesn't matter to me that the service contract or gap or or the Zurich Shield is sold, but it absolutely does because that just helps them stay happy throughout the next, you know, two, three, four years and beyond when they show up to get service, they're taken care of, or if they have a big accident, they have a gap policy, those items, they build rapport for both sides. It's not just the F&I manager at that point. So it is important that you do a proper handoff, uh, inform your F&I manager of kind of the, the situation of the of the customer and set up that deal so they can also perform uh, their job. And, and the overall goal again is that customer walks out of here happy and satisfied and they're taken care of going, going forward in the future. At least that's the way I see it. From, from no, I mean, I think comment on that, yeah. not to cut you off, no, Jack, but um, I think what happens a lot of the time with that also is um, the finance managers don't, inform the salespeople after the sale maybe of what products the customer actually bought therefore the salesperson has no idea when the customer calls back in and says hey i bought xylon you know what do i do um you know so that goes back to the finance manager informing the salesperson of hey you know it doesn't have to be right in front of the customer um i guess it could be you know just a, a quick rundown before they leave just you know with all the customer the finance manager and the salesman or salesman there um, just giving a quick, quick uh, rundown. Hey, he, he, uh, purchased Zylon. He got windshield, um, warranty. You know, if he calls back in, I just want you to be aware too of, you know, how to help them and direct them to the right place. So I think a lot of it 
time it just again boils down to the communication um, finance managers don't drop the ball and and keeping your salespeople up to date on on the you know products that they they ended up putting on their vehicle for protection and and that'll <clears throat> allow you to sound more professional when they do call and and ask for assistance instead of acting like you have no idea you know what they bought or if they have it or if they don't have it you know it's yeah. just again communication no i think that's perfect because like i know when a customer calls in and say they bought a used one in specific because you know it is obviously the manufacturer warranty on the new one if they call in pretty quickly we know any of those issues are going to be covered through that but the first question we ask on a used one is like did they buy a warranty through us because number one then we know how we need to proceed for it and so i know as a salesperson it was always easier to be answer those questions when someone had a warranty that they bought from us it was a lot easier to get that stuff handled and so that like to build on that that's exactly why you want to make it easier for yourself and when it comes to a new car those auxiliary products like windshield key replacement um, knowing what they are uh, how to help them with the claim process just takes you to an elevated level of not just someone who sells them a new car as we've talked about but handles all of the the stuff that comes post uh, sell. So I think it's awesome. I think if you make it as like your full focus, not only just to sell them the car, but get them protected in every facet, it makes your life as a salesperson taking care of them afterwards so much easier, like infinitely easier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Nick brought up a good point. We want to look like we're one mind and one team always. Yeah. That's part of having someone be a, a customer of longevity for sure, because they want to feel like you know, the Sayer group takes care of me. It doesn't matter if it's the salesperson or the manager, the F&I, they're all on the same page. They know exactly what I, what my needs are. They listen to me. They know it, it is good to be on the same page. And for you people, you younger salesmen or people that just began, you should meet with your F&I managers uh, at your stores and, and ask them about the products and kind of get a feeling for how they want you to bring them up if they do it all. I, I think some some version of a intro to those products is good with salespeople, but it depends on your experience level and it depends on your finance manager as well. How, but knowledge of each other's worlds is great. Most of our F&I managers, in fact, all of them came from a sales background currently. Uh, so they, they understand your side pretty well. You should make an effort to understand theirs. And I think together you'll just take care of that customer even better than, than you yeah, would. That's perfect. That knowledge. So. That's perfect. I'll dive in um, to kind of cover what we're doing over here at the Dodge store, what um, Stellantis is kind of incentivizing. And really, um, if you sell here, obviously you got to know it really well. But if you work at the other dealerships, um, it is they've gotten real aggressive. And so if you have any family, friends or customers of yours that bring up a Rango Gladiator, now's a really good time to um, swing over and sell them. We have the Grand Cherokee Laredo Limited and Overland 2023s that are at employee pricing plus. I remember the last time I heard employee pricing plus was December of 2020. And uh, so it's made its return on the Grand Cherokees. And we have all different types of the limiteds, different colors, both inside and outside uh, of these of these trims. So this is really cool. So they get employee pricing, which is listed on the invoice, typically 1% 1, 1 below MSRP plus rebates. So on limiteds, it's employee pricing plus 3,500 bucks in rebate. In Laredo's, it's the same plus 2000 and same with Overland employee pricing plus 2000 So they get below invoice pricing plus the, the extra rebates. That's on Grand Cherokee's 2023s. The Wrangler Rubicon 4xE for 2023 has now been added to the employee pricing. Same with the Pacifica Hybrid Limited and Pinnacle. So those high-end uh, vans 
uh, that we have, the Pacificas have been added to that. And now instead of Gladiators being employee pricing, they've moved them to 10% off MSRP as a rebate. So now they get the rebate. Plus we still have our, uh, you know, that we can discount it. So it can get pretty, pretty hefty. And so do the compasses and any classic half tons that we have. So the old body style half tons are there as well. I believe on the traditional, like the new body style half tons, the DTs, they're still 4,000 um, and they have the special APR listed as well. So they, they stayed the same. And then a lot of them got better, uh, the different models. So really good time to be selling Stellantis products. They got a lot of, a lot of aggressive offers out there and trying to move some of these older units as the 24 start making their way in. So, and if you haven't looked at the new 24 Rangers, we have two of them. Now we have one on our showroom and then we have a, a sport S they've updated the, both the grill, the interior with the new 10.1 inch screen that's wider. And now some models even have power seats. So if you haven't seen that refresh and you work at the other stores, come by, I'd be more than happy to show you. So first time power seats have ever been offered on a Wrangler. So big wow. time we're stepping into the 21st century. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go next at BMW. Um, not a whole lot of change on our side. I'll just refresh uh, what I've um, previously, previously said the past few months. Um, most of their focus is on the EV side when it comes to any type of um, credit or rebate. So continuing with the IX models, uh, there's $9,900 of lease credit for the IX. Um, <clears throat> there's $7,500 lease credit for the I4, I5, and I7 models. Um, the I5 is a new all-electric sedan um, being introduced to the BMW lineup. Um, not exactly sure when those are going to start hitting the, the showroom floor, but you can order those now and probably later this fall, maybe uh, late into winter uh, are when those models will start showing up. But $7,500 on, on those. Um, they do have an incentivized money factor for loyalty customers. Um, for leasing on three series, four thirties, five thirties, X three and X five um, specific models on that. Um, not a whole lot of inventory on hand at the BMW store, but you know, if you do have a customer that that's interested or, or wants to place an order, you know, we'll always get creative and try to find something or, or, or uh, place an order to get, get a allocation spot filled. So that's what we got going on at BMW for the month. Um, and yeah, cool. perfect, sweet. Uh, for Nissan, um, they're running a few different deals this month. The first would be a thousand dollars NMAC loyalty cash on twenty three Muranos. Uh, so NMAC is their finance, their their captive finance company. If you guys don't know, um, there's forty seven fifty in bonus cash for the twenty three Aria. Uh, we are yet to push an Aria out the door. So those are the all electric SUVs that they have. Yeah, that's their all electric version. It's a beautiful car. Um, I think there's just not a ton of awareness yet. It's, it's awesome. The deal looks great. I'm pretty sure talking to Connor, a, a lease would probably look pretty good also in an Aria, uh, at the current time. Um, so yeah, if you're not familiar with that or have people interested in electric vehicles, just keep that in your back pocket. They do have a few models on the ground. Um, and then lastly, there's 1500 off MSRP for 2023 Altimas. <clears throat> so 
pretty good deals over there. They're still they're still a little lighter, but the Nissan struggled with inventory, you know, for a little while now. So uh, on the horizon, we're getting a new store. I'm sure most of you have heard about that. We're putting it across from this CDJR store. And with that, we'll also get some bonus allocations. So if you're over at the Nissan store, keep your head high. Those are those are coming soon. We'll have a little bit more inventory to sell on the ground, I think. I'm really excited for that. So I think there's a there's a bright horizon for the Nissan crew. Perfect. And quick, quick tip yeah. advice for sales managers, uh, sales uh, people as well. So my father-in-law works out at the INL and he mentioned to me on Sunday that there's kind of been a big push over there for their employees to to look into buying EV vehicles where they're, you know, uh, energy um, department of energy, department of energy, you know, it's a big deal over there um, that they invest in, you know, the technology and, and stuff that they uh, research. So um, <clears throat> good idea. If you know somebody or, or, you know, just want to get creative, reach out to somebody at the INL um, Nissan people with that Aria could be a good opportunity to, to get a sell, um, create some relationships. I've been talking to Morgan McKay about maybe getting together with the different stores and coming up with like a list of um, EV vehicles that we offer, hybrid vehicles as well. Um, make some, you know, some pretty good pricing um, for those type of people over there. See if we can generate some business um, and see what happens. But just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, and I think kind of touching on the the idea of you got to understand all different types of hybrids because when someone says hybrid, there's a few different you know mm -hmm. meaning or electric, you know all the way from the e-torque on the Hemi, which is that mild battery that that helps with the fuel economy and, and emissions, all the way into the plug-in ones that we have with the Wranglers and the Grand Cherokees over here, all the way to the fully electric, which you the Nissan BMW store have, and we as a uh, you know Stellantis store have on you know incoming, and so but if you don't understand the differences and what people are asking for the questions they're answering how to answer then then they're not going to feel comfortable buying from you because for a lot of people it's a big change in their lifestyle going from even if they had a plug-in hybrid or or whatever the case to go from a gas to just fully electric so gotta yeah. go you gotta know what you're yeah. you're discussing yeah so. i mean the inl also i mean they're probably one of the biggest employers in the area here most of the people working there relatively successful probably you know, great, uh, great potential customers. If we can start tapping into that, you know, and figure out a way to, to market towards them. I think we could see some big success on the EV hybrid side of sales for, for the area. Absolutely. So I wanted to discuss, we, we pounced around a few ideas. Uh, Chris landed us on this one where we talk about goals and goal setting, whether it's short term and, uh, and long term. So, the thought I had off of it is I, I kind of had always gotten into the habit in, in my life of setting a, a pretty lofty goal somewhere down the road and a variety of different, uh, different goals I've set. And over time, it would just kind of go by the wayside because it was so big or so grandiose that it seemed one that I wasn't able to do it or it was so far down the road that I could just kick the can month to month and continue to be like, well, you know, it'll happen eventually, just not right now, you know, and I was always liking it to like the weekend, the, the Monday diet, that's always going to start where I'm going to eat however I want this football weekend. Cause on Monday it all starts anew. And then by Wednesday you've lost all, all motivation and you're, and you're just going to kick it to Monday again. And so I want to talk about like the, the importance of setting, setting, setting short-term goals um, that allow you to have long-term success. And so Chris, when you think about 
short-term goals, what is, what comes across your mind, you know, examples that you've had in your life of, of kind of focusing more on that as opposed to always a long-term focus? Uh, well, so one area that I've talked about quite a bit, cause I've spent so much time in my life doing it is playing golf. <laughs> and I, you know, as I grew up playing golf competitively, when I was younger, I was used to go into tournaments kind of thinking like, okay, I think about a, you know, 70 needs is what I need to shoot to win today. And I'd focus on that score. And as the holes would progress and I was hitting, I was making bogeys, um, you know, for those of you that aren't familiar with golf, just like getting away from that goal, I would just melt down. And I, I had a lot of collapses that I probably could have salvaged maybe like a top five, let's say finish if I were to just focus back on golf as a game of one shot at a time, one hole at a time. So as I've gotten better at golf through the years, and as I've been able to talk with professionals, even in college, we had the opportunity to, to work with a sports psychologist that worked with people on tour. And the way he really broke golf down was that we would look at things at a maximum in a three hole segment. So if you, if you really want to do it, even a little bit bigger goal, the furthest you can look is three holes and it's an 18 hole round, right? But we need to approach those three holes still as shot for shot. So here's my first tee shot. What do I need to do here? Have I picked my target? Have I done my pre-shot routine? You know, am I focused on the job at hand or am I focused on, oh, I need to birdie the next hole or, you know, I'm thinking three, four holes ahead. That's how you collapse. So as I, anyway, you know, long story short, I'm probably better than I've ever been at golf at this, at my age now, and even including my college career, because I've started to realize I just need to handle what's in front of me, set short-term goals on the hole in front of me or the three holes. And it, it just makes it less of a burden, like you mentioned, of thinking I need to shoot 600 today. I need to basically yeah. kill everybody, which is just such a broad-based idea that will easily uh, make you feel inadequate if, if uh, things start going sideways. Now, if things start going sideways, but you're focused on just, okay, wipe it off, let's do the next shot, it's easier to recover. And I think that applies to sales as well and our business goals or educational, whatever it is, if we just focus on, you know, the task at hand, okay, here's comes my customer. What's my process for greeting? Like, you know, or what, what are my goals for today as far as how many people I'm going to contact? It just makes the month look a lot easier. Yeah. The, the month looks scary. Oh, I'm going to say 20 this month. I'm sure if Alex sat there and, and made that, his only focus from the beginning, it'd be hard to get there. Mm -hmm. I, unless you're looking at steps of each day, you know, just taking a day at a time. It's, it's really a burden to think of too long of a term goal. So anyway, long winded answer there. No, I think that's money because that's exactly what I think about is that you have to set the long-term vision to kind of know where you're trying to go. And so in sales, when you think about the year, you're like, I want to sell, say 120 this year, that breaks down to 10 a month and you have to break it. You start the, the goal, the long-term one, and then you break it down what you have to do monthly and then weekly and then daily. And so for, you know, when you want to sell 10 a month, you know, that's one every other day, essentially, because with the, your days off and weekends, you're around 20 some odd selling days. So every other day, what am I doing to sell a car? And when you, when you think about it that way, like we brought up, so a customer comes in, you go through the whole process instead of being discouraged. Well, I didn't sell. If you end up not selling them, 
you then can analyze that one specific customer and break down why it fell apart or where, you know, where it kind of didn't come to an agreement and then make changes moving on to the next day, because I didn't sell one today. I just got to sell one today or the next day to continue to be on track because 120 sounds a whole lot more daunting than just 10 or one every couple of days makes you just easier to stomach. And then you can improve upon that. And then when you get better, then you, those goals increase then you just continually know how to break it down into smaller chunks to make it more attainable and easier to digest. And that's, I think the most important part about goal setting is making sure, and I've gone this over with the guys at the Dodge stores to make sure that they're smart, the acronym being specific. So is it, is it dialed down? Not as you said, like a broad scope, like I want to shoot six under. Well, it's like, well, what, what am I doing on the front nine? If you're breaking down what I'm doing the next three holes. So there's very specific, you measure them out. So over the next X amount of time, this is what I have to do in order to do it. It's achievable. So it's not, you know, I want to sell 30 cars this month, every one, every single day. It's one something that you've gone close to do, or you've done to reset your expectations. It's relevant and time bound. So, um, if you, if you break down your goals and every single one into those five categories, um, then you're setting goals that are appropriate and that will continue to help you grow. And I think that's the most important part is that they're relevant because inside a goal of wanting to sell 10, you can have different categories inside that goal. So I know that you're going to, we're going to talk about this, but the formula, it's like in order to sell 10 cars a month or one every other day, I got to talk to how many people. And once you have that broken down, uh, then you can, you know, roll that ball forward to success. When Nick, in, in your life, when you, when you talk about like short-term goals, smart goals, even like what has that played in, into your success, both is like, a, you know, in, in sales or just in your life when you, when you've gotten into different hobbies? Um, from a short-term perspective, um, I think it allows you to, to be more productive, you know, on a day-to-day basis. If, you know, you set your monthly goal or whatever, and then, yeah, within that month, you set your, your short-term goals, which, you know, should be probably day-to-day, week-to-week, right? So if you're breaking down what those, what your daily regimen looks like and, you know, how, what you're going to do to, you know, accomplish that monthly goal, um, you're going to find yourself more productive during those days when you have an outline, you know, schedule of things that you're going to do to that, that day, that week, you know, to get you to, to whatever your end goal is. Um, you know, so in my life, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, how setting daily goals, um, allows me to be more productive, um, than just, you know, setting a monthly goal and then just, winging it, you know, day to day and hoping that I hit that monthly goal um, with no, with no process in place, you know, short in in terms of short-term goals. So, you know, taking the time um, to, to really outline what those, those day-to-day processes look like, what, you know, X amount of phone calls, X amount of emails, um, that kind of thing is, is going to, be what allows you to find success in, in your overall long-term type goals. So if you, if you're just setting a, you know, yeah, I want to sell 20 cars this month with no, with no breakdown of what that looks like on a daily basis, you know, good luck hitting it. You, you might get lucky, you know, but you know, over and over again, you know, you're, you're not going to find much success by going that route. So. I think it's, it also brought to my mind, like the importance of building momentum. And we've talked with Zurich a lot about this, but building momentum early, you know, if you don't come in with a plan for that 20, you could end up sitting 
through the 15th of the month. (laughs) By then, maybe you get a second wind, but you've got no momentum. So it's going to be hard to push through 20 from in those 15 day stretch. If you start doing your activities early, like Nick said, and staying organized and being productive, it's easy to get that momentum running. And by the end of the month, you're shooting into the atmosphere because you're, you know, you've just been doing your stuff over and over and seeing the results of it, which it is just a numbers game. So if you aren't making enough attempts and doing the right activities early on, like you, you won't reach the end number. And I think that's our next subject. Well, yeah. And, and I think um, Rick said this a ton, but it's true in any type of sales, the best time to sell your next one is right after you just sold a vehicle is the same in door to door. The moment that you got one for the day, you hope that it was early because then you had all like, you already had kind of the feeling going. It was already, the momentum was on your side. And so the same with sales, typically salesmen like to, after they sell, walk around and we, you know, for lack of better term, peacock about it and, and kind of show off what they just did when in actuality they should be out on, you know, back out on the floor, ready to take another up because like you said, the momentum has rolled in such a way that they're ready to get after it. And so, you know, we, we've talked about this, about knowing your numbers and the importance of that plays in understanding basically, okay, this is what I want to do. But as we break down the steps, how do I get there? So in car sales, uh, how many people do I need to talk to, to get X amount of test drives, which then lead to the X amount of write-ups that then lead to the conversion in sales. And so I know Chris, we, you kind of put together a long time ago, put together this formula to, as I sit down with salespeople set goals with them, they say, I want to sell 15. Or I want to sell 12. Okay. So if your goal is that, how many appointments do you have to set, set to, to get there? Because 50, 50% of your appointments show, give or take. So if you want to sell, let's say you want to sell 10, we'll just do 10 as an even number. You got to set, you got to set 30 appointments. That'll bring you to where you have 15 appointments set that end up showing. So out of your 30 appointments, 15 end up showing up. Of those 15, about 60, um, uh, you should be close to 90% test drive of those appointments. I mean, it should be 100%, but say out of those 15, 14 of them show up, 67% of people people that test drive typically write up. And so then if you have, um, it'd be 24 test drives would bring to 16 write-ups would bring you to 10 sales if you break it down. So really you just got to work backwards. So you set that goal. I have to talk to this many people to bring them here to get this many test drives to bring the cells. So I know that you've touched on that, Chris, but how have you seen that? Like guys focused on the numbers, whether it's in sales here or just elsewhere, help their success in hitting the numbers that they want to set or hit. Yeah. So I didn't really think of sales effort and it includes marketing as well as a math formula until I, I worked um, in a group of dental offices back when I lived in Arizona and we hired a consulting group and, and we thought it would be kind of all encompassing what they taught us, but this is really all they taught us was here is your formula. If you have a hundred leads, you know, you'll convert this many, yada, so on and so forth. And it was written out in a formula form like that, basically showing like, look, you guys want to see this many patients a month. Well, there's a math behind that. <clears throat> now, those stats that you mentioned, uh, 50% of appointments show 67%. Uh, of, well, I don't, what was it? 90% of the test drives? Yeah, it should be, yeah, it should be around 90, 95 You should be shooting for that. Yeah. yeah. So that's not a given. I guess that's based on each person's skill level, but you should be shooting for 90% plus. And then 60%, 67% of those will write up. And of those, uh, 
a certain percentage will sell. So you, you, like Zach said, you could plug and play the beginning of each month based on your end re projected result and know what activities you should be doing. Another important thing with this that I think we've failed at here in the past, because we have brought this formula forth, is we haven't uh, tailored it to each individual. So that's where you figure out what your numbers are, because those are just market like industry standard numbers. Let's figure out how many people you're getting to test drive. How many of yours are get riding up? Like break down those numbers each day and throughout the month and then identify like, okay, industry standard is 67% right up from a test drive. I'm only getting 40. What's wrong with my process? It allows you to identify like, where am I weak? And where do I need to work, which keeps the momentum going, keeps the focus and productivity going because you kind of are identifying my weak spots. You just go through the motions every day and don't ever kind of measure it and look at it. It's hard to stay motivated. It's just like, yeah, I'm doing everything you guys told me. I don't know. You know, if there's just generalities to everything, it's really hard to stay motivated and keep your goal in mind and the activities. So, yeah, I think we need to tailor it to ourselves. You can look at it first off with the industry standards, then tailor it yourself, and then reflect on the results uh, so you can make the changes to, to get better. You know? No, I think it's one of the funniest things because initially when you ask the salesperson, like, so how many did you sell last month? Oh, I sold 10, but it was slow, X, Y, and Z. And then you start breaking down the numbers. Well, this is how many people we talk to. I think salespeople are always surprised at how many people they actually had an opportunity with. Mm -hmm. And that's why like, we made it a part of our standard of excellence because unless you know what's weak, you never know what to improve. And so you never actually progress month to month. And so when you have a salesperson who's focused on the numbers on every single opportunity, uh, you know, then you're able to pinpoint it and improve it. And then you see progression from it. Um, and I think the best salespeople, no matter what industry you're in, they know their numbers and they know exactly how the formula down to a science about themselves. And they just are churning that as much as possible, because no matter what you do in sales, it's just a numbers game. The best salesmen just get better at the, the numbers. They know them and they also improve them in every aspect. Um, just a quick comment on that, too. You know, understanding, you know, what type of environment you're in as well, um, I think is important for a salesperson as well, because not every store is going to have the same amount of opportunities. It's not going to have the same, you know, industry, you know, standard your standards in terms of, you know, percentages. So understanding, you know, what store, you, you know, situation you're at, environment, um, understanding kind of like on a monthly basis, how many leads that store can expect, you know, and, and try, like Chris said, tailor fitting, you know, these, these numbers to not only you individually, but, but, you know, kind of as a store in general as well. Um, you know, it's really easy to hop on and, and, you know, kind of find industry standards, but, you know, it's, it's hard to really say that, you know, every store in the country should, you know, live off of those type of standards. It's a good starting point to look at, you know, your store versus those. But I, I think understanding the environment you're in um, and, and then tailor fitting those those measurable um, 
key performance indicators to yourself, your store um, is important as well. Yeah, because it's all about just understanding your customer profiles. Like the people, there there are some crossovers, the people that shop at all three of the stores that, um, that you guys own, but there's also major differences between a lot of the buyers too. Um, and so understanding like, okay, over time, this is a pool of like the 70% of the people that I'm going to run into. And then the 30%, I just have to, you know, be dynamic with and adjust and understand how I'm going to work with them. But if you focus on the 70%, most of the time you're going to have most of your bases covered. And so, yeah, I think it's a really good point. You got to, you have to be intentional about everything that you're doing, about your numbers, about understanding your customer base, about all these different skills that we talk about and, and be busy with your activity. Like Chris said, is, is, you know, if I want to set five, you know, three appointments for the weekend, I have to make 15 phone calls a day. Like there are things that you can over time measure of yourself to know how much it takes for you to get to a certain spot. And so everything can be calculated and you can be intentional with every moment. So just sitting around waiting for an opportunity, you can be intentionally seeking out those opportunities to be successful. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of the time we want to leave things in generalities because it protects yourself. It protects you. Yeah. yeah. It protects you against accountability. I mean, I was that way a lot of the time in school. Uh, I ran into that when I started doing my accounting degree. <laughs> I remember I'm pretty quick with uh, te- like I'm pretty good at test taking. It's it's a weird skill to have, I guess. But I could go into a lot of tests and not study at all and then get a B, A or B in it. And once I got in, though, to advanced accounting, you can no longer BS it. You either know the material or you don't. And I chose to go into my first test, didn't, didn't study at all, just thinking I'll just figure it out, you know, in the test. And I ended up getting like a D minus on it. And that was my first like wake up call, just like, holy cow. And my immediate reaction to that was I started feeling sorry for myself and feeling bad and thinking, ah, oh, maybe this isn't for me. And I'm just, you know, I'm just not that good. And I remember like talking to my dad and a few other people a few days later, I, I was like, holy crap, man, stop making excuses. Like, what did you expect to get on this test with, with no preparation? Not even the best accountants can go in blind and, and pass it. So instead, you know, it, it changed my mind. I stuck with the degree, ended up doing well, but I ended up spending, you know, hours and hours of preparation and realizing, you know, it's better to go give it your best effort and, and fail or succeed than it is to just fly blind with no accountability always and just be like, well, it's just up to the fates, whether I you know in this situation, whether I sell 20 cars this month, and I'll just have to get lucky. Like that, that's not reality. I think that's, uh, I think the main reason people don't, like you said, really, I mean, sometimes it is protecting yourself because the more you, effort you put into something more vulnerable, vulnerable you are if mm-hmm. it fails because you obviously care about the success of it. And so when you experience a setback, it hits you a little bit heavier than if you just didn't really try, because then you have all the excuses that you can fall back to in our, in our industry. It's always the same. No one showed up the interest rates are too high and they're not putting enough money in the trades, not selling the cars at cheap (laughs) enough price. If you, if you have those as kind of the excuses you can pull, then when you don't give your full effort, you can just blame everything else. And And, yeah. And how many of those people that walked with those excuses knew their numbers? Would you guess? Oh, almost not here. Absolutely zero. So yeah, yeah, they really had no case. I mean, they should have just walked out and said nothing because they, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know why they were doing it. They had no goals. Probably most of them. Yeah. No, I think that's perfect. I think you touched on something really good about the challenges that inevitably come. It's not if, but when, Mm -hmm. 
So Nick, for yourself, when you're hit with a setback, how have you found um, to overcome it? Like, what have been the best practices for you in your life to, to take it as it is and then move forward with, with renowned courage to continue to push for your goals? Uh, I guess the first comment on that would be, you know, having a, a goal outlined, you know, it's one thing to, to fail at something that you never had a goal <laughs> set in place. You have no idea how many cars you expected or wanted to sell that month. And, you know, month in comes and the results are what the results are, you know? So the first thing is, you know, is setting that goal. Like we talked about short-term um, goals and leading to, to long-term success. Um, so, you know, taking it day by day, you know, with those short-term, short-term goals, um, you know, say you wanted, you were hoping to, or not hoping you set the goal to sell a car, you know, on Monday and that, that goal didn't come to fruition, you know, going back to the drawing board, figure out, did I do everything on my, on my check sheet or, or, uh, processes that I was going to do Monday to get that car sold. And then going back and, you know, holding yourself accountable. Oh, maybe I only made 15 calls instead of 20, like I outlined, you know, I was going to do, you know, in order to get that sale. Um, so accountability, um, I think for me is the biggest, um, takeaway from when you fail and when you succeed, but when you fail, you know, go back to the drawing board, see maybe what you did, maybe where you fell short. And then the next day, the next week, you know, again, outline what you're going to do differently to, to, to make it happen. And, and I think that's why the, the term short-term goals lead to long-term success, right? Because there's probably going to be a lot of short-term failures, but if you're yeah. consistent in your processes, you're holding yourself accountable on a daily basis, you're going to find the long-term success. Now, I, I, I tie this in. I've recently um, gone into running over the last probably 14 months, give or take. And through that, there's been an absolute insane amount of failures as along with the successes. You know, I, Chris, mean, uh, you ran that half marathon together and that race itself had a number of failures and a number of successes um, throughout the entirety of the thing for myself. It was one of the hardest things I've done, but in the battle that was mile one through 13, there was miles that went good. There's miles that went bad, but I just continued just to, there was at one point in that race where both my quads cramped up and I fell on my face. Like, I don't think there's much more embarrassing than that. I watched it. <laughs> it was pretty bad. But since that point, because, you know, I saw it through and I, and I realized, okay, this is kind of what entails to, to, to do run, to do running. I don't know, or to run, to be a runner. Now, since that point, I've been more intentional about what I want to do every day and every week. I have a plan that's broken down over the last 18 weeks. And in a week and a half, I hopefully will run and finish my first marathon. But when I started running 14 months ago, the idea that I could run, you know, what I did a couple weeks ago, 20 miles was just, I didn't understand how I'd ever do that. I was a football player. I had never run in my entire life. And so there was all these excuses that I, my body was built different. I'm not, you know, built for the long distance. I'll, you know, you go down the list. And even after finishing that half, I, you know, I could be like, oh, that was good, but I'm never going to get into that again. But through that, I was able to see what it takes and through the failures that I learned through that experience with, you know, for me, for hydration and for food and all that, I now have a better plan in place that I've been able to execute and be better prepared. And so a lot of times failing as, you know, as cliche as a sound is never like the worst thing. Failing means at least that you tried. And if you take and are humble enough to take the bits and pieces that were good and also the ones that were bad and improve upon them, then overall it's going to be a massive success for you. And then what 
what you can achieve can be outstanding. And so I think too often we're too egotistical and too prideful to evaluate ourselves honestly. But if you do, it's amazing what you can achieve over time through those failures. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's a really good story and experience. Zach, I've been able to witness your growth there because we, we go to the gym a lot and we did run that first race, but I kind of thought of running in such a simple way too, but talking with you and watching your progress, like there's, you can break it down to nutrition, you know, hydration, like stepping uh, a little further in distance each day and week. Like there, there's this whole world that you can dig into if you really wanted to get better or you could use those excuses that you said. (laughs) So that, that choice is in every decision we make in life and especially in a sales sales setting like we have here so cool points guys yeah no i think my last is like the the whole thing like choose your hard like they go down the list of all the things that are hard in life like whether it's like marriage marriage is hard but so is divorce and you know selling 20 cars a month is hard but so is selling none because of the repercussions that come from it there's always hard choices but which one do you want to live with the hard work or the the hard failure so i think they're all kind of intertwined that way but that's awesome. No well, cool. Um, well, we will turn it over to Brandon. We'll give him a shout out and talk to him about his experience here uh, in sales and in finance. I will welcome back in Brandon. We got Brandon Atnip, BMW finance business manager or whatever title, like whatever you want to call it. How do you want to describe <laughs> it? Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, yourself. How long you've been at the dealership? How long you did sales, finance, all that just little yeah. synopsis of who Brandon is. <laughs> a little synopsis of me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you count my first hire date, that's December 1st, 2013. So coming up on 10 years, but I did take an eight-month stint where I was out in Georgia. It was a good learning experience, but I learned that Idaho and the Sayer Group is the best group out there. So came back and they thankfully took me with open arms. <laughs> It's a big plus. <laughs> can't can't deny the fact that these guys are amazing here. Sales uh, was quite the experience. I mean, it honestly was phenomenal the entire time. Uh, the only downside is, you know, your first few months doing it, you're sitting here thinking like, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, is, this is going to pay my bills. And thankfully for me, I was a bit passionate about the brand. Uh, a bit passionate is a bit of an understatement too. I'm incredibly passionate about BMW. So, I mean, it just kind of flowed very, very well for me, except for I would not stop talking <laughs> myself out of deals in the beginning. Couldn't figure out why I wasn't selling things or selling more than five, six, seven cars a month. And then, you know, I asked our general manager at the time, Rick Williams, uh, what I needed to do differently. And he's like, you honestly just need to shut up for a second. And just listen <laughs> to the customer and only answer their questions. Don't tell them things they don't care about. If you don't sit here and talk and talk and talk about things that they don't care about, you'll sell more cars. So I slowed down and just listened to the customers. And that was a huge benefit. Then, oh, what was it? Seven years in, eight, how, eight years in, something like that. They asked me to step into finance and started that. I've been doing this for a year and a half now. And it's a lot more exciting. You get these 30 minute sessions with people <laughs> instead of, you know, two, three, four hours of building rapport and finding out who they are and becoming their friend. You have 30 minutes, 45 minutes to become their friend and gain their trust and do the same thing a salesperson does just a lot quicker and make sure that they know that you're still here to take care of them regardless of, you know, knowing them for 30 minutes or knowing them for three, four hours or 
10 years in my case. I know a lot of our customers at BMW. So it's, it's pretty pleasant to have that opportunity to work with all my previous clients in the past as well. Yeah, sure helps, doesn't it? Um, just quick question, stepping back a little bit. So before BMW, I remember when I started out there, I think at the time you were working for Coke, right? Yeah. And I saw you drop in one or two times before and, and, uh, you know, Rick expressed to me, he's like, yeah, that, that kid, he, he, he loves BMWs. He loves BMWs. I'm going to offer him a job. So going back to that, how did that all play out from you? Driving for Coke, right? Is that what you were doing? Yeah, I, I was the to, truck manager. To becoming a salesperson at uh, at BMW. How did that discussion go? What was your reaction to, to uh, Rick asking you to join the team? Oh, gosh. I mean, my first time I came in, I bought a car. Uh, we had a salesperson there, Rick Orr. He kind of brushed me off because I was dirty at the time. I was covered <laughs> in crime. And he's just like, nah, this kid can't afford anything. I'm 22 at the time, I think. He just wasn't having any of it ended up buying a car and, uh, you know, Rick, I mentioned to Rick Williams that I was like, ah, oh, I'd love to work here. This is my brand. Like, I <laughs> love this, even though I'm working for Coca-Cola and he just kind of kicked it around, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't expecting anything. And then I came in and I bought a, probably a third or fourth one at that point. And he sat me down after signing paperwork with Nick Stewart. And he told me, he's like, Hey, you know, I want to offer you this job. And I said, okay, we're, what do I need to do? And Told me a little bit. I was excited. I was nervous because I was on a very good guarantee at Coca-Cola. I had, I mean, everything I could ever want for, but it, I think it actually paid quite a bit more than what I made first really? year into sales. I mean, it was, it was exciting, but it, my happiness was much, much better there. Yeah. Uh, so going off of that though, I mean, how does, how does being passionate about what you're doing um, affect your overall performance and outlook on i guess your job in life uh, as far as that i mean it's easier to just handle everything with a smile and i was 40 pounds heavier when i left coca-cola and <laughs> came over here and working in a field where i was excited i mean my health alone was enough to make up for that i mean people saw me lose 40 pounds relatively quickly and they're like what's happening what are you changing i said honestly i'm just happy now and happiness is honestly the biggest nice. thing for anybody you smile talk to your customers and smiling and they know you're happy being where you're at you're going to sell more. You don't even have to try at that point because if you express your happiness, why wouldn't they want to join in on your happiness? How do you, with, you know, all the, the good that comes from it, there's obviously a lot of stressors when it comes to sales. Like you said, with, with, uh, you know, having sold something for a few days, obviously in a commission job, how have you been able to find ways to handle low points or maybe a couple bad days when it comes to sales environment and continue to approach it with the same demeanor? Honestly, it was uh, calling up the customers that I knew I had the biggest impact on and just kind of talking with them, making sure they were doing good. I had one customer, he uh, came in and bought a 750 from me and I, you know, he was kind of brushed off to the side on me at the time. He rolled in in a 97 Toyota Tacoma and it was, you know, dirty, holy jeans, holy <laughs> t-shirt. And he stroked a check for the 750 that was on our showroom floor for $112,000 and I ended up becoming pretty decent friends with him and he still comes up from time to time and buys cars from us. Yeah. Uh, but talking to him, just making sure he was doing okay, letting him know it was new. I mean, it really kind of got me through those dead spots and reminded me that, you know, I am good at my job. It's just a dead spot and just trying to stay positive helped, helped me a ton. Yeah. 
Um, so I think going back to, I mean, your passion for BMW, I think has been, um, part of the reason for your success, you know, um, at BMW, but also I think most people at the Ron Sayer auto group realize that Brandon's a team player, you know, he'll put on any hat he needs to, 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 uh, you know, help the, the dealership out. So how does being a team player, how has that impacted your career so far with Ron Sayer? Um, how has it impacted your relationship with your other fellow employees as well? You know, it's uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of mentality. Uh, my biggest resource, honestly, was the service department. I'd go and help, help push cars. I'd help wash cars when I was selling. I still and, do. Yeah. <laughs> let's, be, let's be clear on that. It hasn't stopped. Yeah. And I mean, Gina would literally be like, hey, Brandon, she, she'd pull me to the side and she'd say, hey, I've got this guy coming in. He's expressed some interest. And then the two other veteran salespeople at the time were getting pissed off because you know, she's handing me all these people who are interested in buying cars, but I'm the one back there helping her out. And so she was giving me people who were interested in buying cars. So, I mean, it benefited me greatly. And then I'd go and buy her lunch. Yeah. Who doesn't want free lunch and who doesn't want a free car deal? I mean, if they trust the sales department and then the sales department said, or the service department says, Hey, you know, we trust this salesperson out of the other ones. You've already got 90% of the battle done. You don't have to build that rapport with them. No, I think that's, you know, critical is no, no one really cares how much, you know, or, or how you know good you are, unless you show how much, how much you care. And so yeah. when it comes to the service department, you know, always being willing to help out. Uh, there's a lot of success that come from that. And it's the same with salespeople, you know, you gotta be willing to help out salespeople from time to time. And if you are a team player that way, it'll always come back around typically tenfold of, of oh, people yeah. being willing to, to help you out as well. What's uh, outside of, you know, obviously dial it down that product knowledge and passion was, you know, the key attribute for your success. What other sales element do you think maybe you weren't so refined in that you had to work on in order to become successful selling? Uh, assuming the sell was a big one for me. Okay. I was so bad at actually believing someone wanted to buy a car. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was awful. I would present numbers and instead of saying, you know, that's a great deal, isn't it? You know, I'd sit there and is there something else I need to do for you? Yeah. And I would ask them questions that it sounded like I was asking myself as well, instead <laughs> of just being like, all right, you know, let's go ahead. And you obviously like the numbers as much as I like the numbers. We did a great job here. Let's get you in that new car today. I mean, it was easy as just a trial closing question earlier on the lot. Even I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't ask them other than price and payment. Is this a perfect car for you? Wouldn't do that. I'd just say, Something else you want to look at? <laughs> don't ask questions. I mean, I was so bad at asking questions to myself and to them at the same time that, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, you know, I actually do have to keep looking around now and <laughs> give them an excuse not to buy. Exactly. <laughs> Try to give them reasons to stick there and stay with you instead of, hey, something else you're looking at. I mean, that that's just going to kill you right there, right that's out of the really gate. I like that. Yeah, I always like the Rick Wall says a ton of never underestimate people's wanting to buy a car. Yeah. You know, just because something doesn't to you look good, you know, you would never do yeah. this or that doesn't mean that other people aren't super comfortable with it and expecting yeah. that at the same time. And so oftentimes the salespeople, you know, I'm happy you brought that up. We can talk ourselves out of more deals, like you said, okay. then we can talk our customers Facts. into. So Facts. Yeah. um kind of piggybacking off of what uh Chris Zach and I talked about today goal setting um, and how it impacts your long-term um, success. Um, you know, how, how long has it been since we brought, brought Zurich on? Uh, almost a year, right? Yeah. Coming yeah. up on a year. 
Um, you know, before Zurich, I don't think any of the stores or employees for that matter, I shouldn't say that, but I would, I would presume most of us weren't um, very keen on, you know, setting specific measurable goals, kind of like we talked about today, we brought Zurich on and, you know, they've, they've started to instill uh, in us individually and, and as stores, you know, ways to, to set goals, why it's important, um, you know, sending out finance reports, that kind of thing. How has that impacted you, um, you know, from a, a finance standpoint, you know, how has that impacted you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And your job. I mean, I was in finance for six months before they came on and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I mean, I sure. stepped in there and yeah, I had uh, Nick Westfall training me. I had Morgan Wilson training me and I had, I think a little bit of Logan Murray and a little bit of Marv. I mean, I was tossed around. I didn't just have one person and right. one like, Hey, this is what we're doing first. And then, you know, I had the, the idea from sales where, you know, I could go out and publicly advertise for myself. I would try to go through a box of business cards and just dropping them off at businesses beforehand. Now I didn't have that luxury where I could just throw things in places. So I was kind of at a standstill. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, JD with Zurich has been a huge uh, asset to me. I mean, showing me that, you know, making small goals and turning them into the bigger goals was a huge thing. And I saw my numbers go up from I don't, I didn't measure them back then. And now I have been measuring them since I stepped in with JD. Uh, and since before Telllight, I mean, he, he asked me the biggest question when I was in Reno with him, he's like, okay, well, what, what's your PVR? And I was like, I don't even know what PVR is, man. <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, well show me what you have for the last few months. And I showed him and he's like, this is your PVR. And he broke it down for me. He's like, well, how can we get you up into the, you know, 1775 or 2000 or whatever it was that he asked me there. I said, honestly, I have no idea. So, I mean, we sat there. And we were talking over dinner for probably an hour and a half working instead of playing like we were supposed to be doing. So that was kind of neat. Uh, but he really helped me set these little goals instead of just trying to say, hey, you know, let's hit 20 service contracts. I mean, it, it's been a huge impact for me. You know, follow through with the little ones, focus on the little ones, the ones that you can do today. Don't focus on the ones that you need to have done by the end of the month. Those will fall into place if you do your daily goals. So that's been my biggest impact there. Awesome. Beautifully said. <laughs> very well said. Very well said. Glad to hear that it's paying off. Um, and, you know, goals are goals are the key to, to long-term success, as we've mentioned multiple times. Um, you know, you might find success a few months out of the year without setting goals. Uh, maybe, you know, more often than not. But, you know, if you view this as a career and long-term deal, I feel like, um, you know, having, having these goals and, and you know partners like Zurich um, to help us set these goals and understand the importance of it I think long term I think we're going to continue to see a, a lot of improvement in our processes and and numbers overall and um, you know hopefully that equates to more money in everybody's pocket right which is what we're what the goal That's, is that is the goal absolutely well thanks Brandon appreciate you're welcome. you we're taking time out of your day coming over um, appreciate it and thanks for all the stuff you do for us yeah thanks, thanks for having me appreciate you man